Hey guys, welcome back to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice, and I'm excited to offer you a three-part masterclass short course series on the brain. I'll be in conversation with neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart, author of two books, Neuroscience for Leadership and The Source. She's based in the UK and teaches applied neuroscience at MIT Sloan in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Swart is a regular virtual contributor to the show. She and I share the same passion of simplifying technical jargon around the brain and presenting you practical knowledge in order to enable you to apply neuroscience to your personal brand influence journey. This three-part short course series will take you into the mind of an MIT professor, giving you a seat at one of the top universities in the world. Please share your thoughts about this episode, or you can get in contact with me for bookings or for general thoughts. Podcast at timothymaurice.com or tmw at timothymaurice.com. Enjoy episode one of three. I hope you find Tara as delightful as I do. I want to start the show with a quote by Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, where he says, between stimulus and response, there is space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Forces beyond our control can take away everything you possess except one thing, your freedom to choose how you will respond in that situation. And at the end of the day, that's what we're going to be discussing. I love that quote. And actually, you know, in terms of the science, it's really about what we call free will, but also free won't. So it's the choice to not do things as well as to do things, which I think is, you know, super cool and really relevant in the modern world. Basically, you know, I like to say the brain is the CEO of the body yes. and the, the prefrontal cortex um, is pretty much the CEO of the brain. And it's the part that's to do with articulated speech and planning and predicting for the future. So that's that's the generalization. Um, but the specific executive functions are things like being able to regulate your emotions, being able to suppress your unconscious biases, solve complex problems, think flexibly and creatively, and to multitask or what I prefer to call task switching. Sort of a broad look at our goals will be exactly that, along with agility of thinking, adaptability, tolerance for ambiguity, and hopefully we'll get to, you know, how people can enable some creativity, structure rewards, etc. So I want to start by saying um, it's really been important for me on this process, as well as I know when I conduct seminars, and, and I've noticed also when you speak as well, that you try to simplify this language. We're totally on the same page. My passion is to, to take the science and say, what does this mean for a real person every day in their life? And although, you know, I understand having been a sort of academic research scientist myself, I understand that there's a fine line between making it practically applicable and making it so simple that it's no longer sort of true to the science. Um, and I think you have to tread that line very carefully. But at the end of the day, I'm much more interested in, is this practically applicable? Is this actually going to help people? Is it going to change people's lives? And that's why I was so thrilled when we won that award recently from the Chartered Management Institute for Practical Manager Book of the Year. That was the category that I would have wanted to win. Um, That's congratulations. I didn't know that. Yeah, thank you. It's very recent. So, So I'm really thrilled. It just makes me feel like the reason I wrote the book has been recognized. Um, and hopefully these 
these podlets will do exactly the same thing. They'll give people actual things that they can go away and do starting today that will make a difference to their life. So continuing in this uh, vein, you know, the prefrontal lobes, if you look at the brain, it would be sort of like the front part of the brain. But ultimately, it's not the only part of the brain that's responsible for decision making. Or am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. I, I really like people to think of the brain as a very complex, dynamic system that's cascading responses all over it. So, you know, anything that happens in the limbic system has an effect on the prefrontal cortex and vice versa. And, you know, even down to a much smaller scale than that. So what I don't want is to, you know, us to use the analogy of like the accounting department and the marketing department work in complete isolation from each other. Sure. It should be that, you know, everything that's happening in one part is, is affecting everything that's happening in another part, just like it is in brains. It's like that in businesses. You know, if we look back throughout evolutionary history, you know, the prefrontal lobes is not necessarily new, but it is not. I mean, it's a is it the newest part of the brain? Yeah, so it's, the, it's, it's newer and it's the newest part of the brain. It's the it's the outer frontal part of the brain that we're talking about and sort of, you know, the brain. There's always been a brainstem, even reptiles have a brainstem. And then there was the limbic system, which is the more emotional, intuitive part of the brain, which is heavily involved in decision making. You know, it biases all of our decisions. And then we grew this much larger cortex than, than we had before or than, or that, than any other primate has. Um, and we're not quite sure if that grew and then we discovered how to make fire and cook meat or whether we discovered fire and then we could ingest a lot more protein and we didn't need such a long gut and we were able to grow that part of our brain and get those sort of capabilities like predicting and planning for the future and starting to actually speak with words rather than just grunting and gesture. Whether people realize it or not, it impacts all of our lives on so many levels. Even you look around the world and everything from when you get your driver's license to when you're allowed to drink is largely uh, determined by when this area of the brain matures. Don't you think it's weird, though, that you're allowed to drive before you're allowed to drink? <laughs> uh, Almost not strange. Yeah, I know growing up in America, you know, I got my learner's permit um, at 15 years old, which is a long ways away from drinking. Yeah, I know. So, so the prefrontal, uh, this region fully matures at around, I mean, there's been a lot of debate, but a lot of consensus somewhere between what 19 and 21 you know i think the jury's really out on that now that we've you know learned so much more about neuroplasticity i think the reason that we're doing these podlets is because what we're saying is it doesn't matter how old you are you can still change and improve your prefrontal cortex okay sure it may not be growing you know at the rate that it did till you were about 19 to 21 there are activities that you can do to keep it as plastic and flexible as possible you know to become better at regulating your emotions to be able to feel more confident about solving complex problems or thinking outside the box. I really, you know, if there's one message that we want people to take away from this, it's that you can still change and improve things that you thought you weren't good at. Got it. In terms of the role of neuroplasticity, let's just sort of break that down. Um, Apparently there are three main mechanisms in uh, neuroplasticity. One is uh, myelination, synaptic connection, and neurogenesis. You know, I mean, these processes themselves are not things that I really think people need to know about, but I'll tell you why they're important in terms of playing to your strengths. 
So myelination is this process of adding this fatty outer layer to the the neurons or nerves that we have in our brains and our bodies. And the, the neurons that have that fatty layer conduct the chemical and electrical messages quicker than the neurons that don't. So things like, for example, if you put your finger in a fire by mistake, then um, the heat response will be very quick and you'd withdraw your hand quickly. And then it would take a little bit longer for the pain to register. So it's kind of like the heat response is myelinated and the pain response is slower um, because it's probably not myelinated. So myelination is kind of like what people do when they practice weights at the gym. It just it sort of builds up a capability that you have already. And it's pretty simple to do just by repetitive practice. Okay. The sign up to Genesis just means that because the synapse is the space between two neurons and it means creating more connections between neurons. And that's not that difficult to do either. If you focus a lot of attention and you practice something really deliberately, you know, like, say, learning a new language, you should be able to do that. It might take some time and effort, but you would be able to do it. The neurogenesis is actually about growing new nerve cells from little embryonic nerve cells. And that doesn't happen an awful lot in the adult brain. It happens more than we thought it used, you know, we used to think it did. Um, But to actually induce that process, you pretty much have to give up your day job. So so that's why we say play to your strengths. Don't suddenly try to start playing the piano if you've never played a musical instrument and you can't read music. Um, although there's lots of good, you know, good things about learning a musical instrument. If it's so out of your comfort zone, then maybe it might be better if you learn a new language instead. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. Okay, cool. So neuroplasticity, the bottom line is that, as you said rightly, we are having these podcasts because we want people to know that irrespective of their age, there is capacity, additional capacity that historically people didn't think there was. And, um, I want to just sort of shift as we continue to raise the awareness of why this conversation is important to the hippocampus or however you pronounce it. You know, this region sort of grows with increasing knowledge um, and so forth. Can you just sort of break down the role? I mean, there's a great, there was a study done around the taxi drivers in London and how that region of the brain grew the more they sort of remembered. It's interesting you picked on the hippocampus because that's one area that we we have seen active neurogenesis. We haven't seen it anywhere else in the brain yet, but I suspect we will. It's just a matter of time. So the hippocampus is mostly to do with memory. And there's a little part of it that's particularly to do with memory and navigation. And so in London, the licensed taxi drivers do a process called the knowledge where they learn every street in London off by heart. And, you know, this is kind of more attention intense than learning a new language. It's a huge amount of learning. And after this process is complete, which takes anything from months to years, um, that part of the hippocampus that's to do with navigation has physically grown in size and density. And we've seen that on brain scanning. Um but actually, the most sort of probably the most important part of the hippocampus is that it connects memory and emotion. So the more emotionally intense a memory is or the more times you've experienced it, the more you're going to lay down a strong memory of, of whatever that scenario was. Nice. Um, and, you know, that's something that you can have choice around as well. You know, you can reduce the emotional impact of a situation. That's kind of how we deal with stress. Or you can repeat something so that it becomes an embedded memory. You know, that's just the process of learning in the brain is, is sort of 
quite largely based on repetition. Now, with technology and apps and, you know, disruptive sort of brands like Uber, uh, these taxi drivers may not need to remember. So, you know, using them as sort of a, an analogy, how is technology and the fact that we become so sort of dependent upon technology for memory, how does it impacting this region of the brain? Oh, well, I mean, it's been the case for years now, pretty much since smartphones became popular, that most, you know, our memory and concentration centers have shrunk already. I mean, it hasn't even taken that long for that to sort of show up in in our generation. Um, and, you know, there's an increase in the rise of things like ADHD and Asperger's disease. And some people believe that that's to do with the sort of amount of information overload that we have through our devices. Um you know, I mean, it's a little bit like man discovering fire, which I talked about before. We, we can't stop it. Technology is is happening to us. And, you know, we've probably already passed the point where it's going to take over a lot of our capabilities. So I think in terms of these disruptive technologies, you've just got to stay one step ahead. You, you talked about, you know, um, um, ambiguity, tolerance, and being adaptable. Those are the key skills that we need going forward, you know, relying on technical skills. It's not going to be enough because the question you need to ask yourself is, can a robot do these technical skills? And if they can, then they probably will be in a few years time. I hope you enjoyed part one of this three part series. You can visit Dr. Swart's work by going to www.taraswart.com and follow her on Instagram at Dr. Tara Swart. Please share this episode with someone you think can use this brain boosting short course. Oh, and remember to rate us and comment. It helps others find us. Until next time.